is Rachel from School Psych Podcast. Thank you for joining us tonight. We are excited to have a returning guest, and um, uh, I hope that you guys catched the caught the previous episode. So that that was that was really exciting and a good one. And so we're really thrilled tonight. Um, we're also coming off of a NASP high, so we were all doing all the things at NASP and taking all the selfies, and um, it was just a really fun time. I think I got somebody. I think use the term convention hangover. Um, I think that that's what I was feeling afterwards. I was like, I can't do any more school psychology. I can't do any more social media. It's just too much. But it was it was really fun, and we got to present with Dr. Festino and Oyen, and um, they were amazing. And we had just uh, a ball. And I went around taking selfies with everybody. We kind of joked that uh, all these researchers were like Pokemon and we were going to catch them all and take selfies with them. So we, <laughs> we went around and did that. And we're huge nerds and um, just had a lot of like nerdy excitement going on. So it was a fun time. But um, I'm a school psychologist in the state of Maryland. I'm going to pass it over to my friend Rebecca, who's going to tell you how to participate. Rebecca? Hi everybody, I'm Rebecca, and the best way you can participate if you are watching us live is to sign into your YouTube account and comment right alongside the video. We will be watching carefully the live comment feed and sharing the, your questions and comments with Dr. Kennevay. Also, if you are listening later this week or at another time, please continue to comment and share your questions and thoughts using the hashtag psychedpodcast. You can comment on Twitter or either of the two Facebook page, School Psyched, Your School Psychologist, or our dedicated page for the podcast, Psyched Podcast, School Psyched Podcast. So I will be looking for notifications this evening, but hopefully you are watching us live because you can be a part of this discussion and we really um, look forward to having you um, contribute. And now I will pass it along to Eric. All right, hello everyone. I am Eric and I am also a school psychologist in the state of Connecticut. And as Rachel mentioned, we are sort of still buzzing from the energy from NASP and the NASP hangover is kind of a funny uh, analogy, I think. Um, and and so like when you have to sort of get over that and nurse that a little bit, you just need a little more school psych to help, you know, help you through just a little bit. So um, we're still school psyching it up, as they say, uh, every day. And um, the energy was contagious. It was fantastic to be around thousands of school psychologists and connect with so many researchers and so many practitioners and um, administrators in the field as well, trainers, and just talk about the field and learn together, share together, and have fun together as well. So um, as we have mentioned, we're welcoming back Dr. Gary Canavay, who is kind of uh, a favorite of ours. Um, we first met him in person, the three of us met him in person last year in Atlanta and connected with him really quickly and just enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed hanging out with him. And I think the first night we chatted with him till the wee hours of the morning, just picking his brain and enjoying stories and um, and just hearing all of the things that he had to say and just uh, making a great connection with him. Which is so, why it was it was especially good. So um, this NASP, I was able to catch him, but but Eric and Rebecca had left already. So I sent them a selfie. I was like, ha ha ha, look who I found. <laughs> so just, just sign up. <laughs> it's so true. Uh, Rachel had connected with a few people that uh, Rebecca and I didn't get to see. And um, so we joked that there was dissension among the ranks with uh, all the people she was able to connect with. But it's all in good fun. And we're so thrilled to reconnect with Dr. Canavay today. 
So I'm just going to introduce him a little bit with some bio information, and then Dr. Panabe can uh, tell us a lot about ethics, test standards, and test interpretation, measurement matters. So Dr. Gary Canave is a professor of psychology at Eastern Illinois University, principally involved in the school psychology training program. He earned his PhD from Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, and was a school psychologist for eight years in the Phoenix metropolitan area before entering academia. He previously taught grad courses as an adjunct faculty for Arizona State and Northern Arizona Universities. Dr. Canave is a fellow of the American Psychological Association Division 5, Quantitative and Qualitative Methods, and Division 16, School Psychology. A charter fellow of the Midwestern Psychological Association and a member of the Society for the Study of School Psychology. He is past president of the Arizona Association of School Psychologists and is an associate editor of the Archives of, School Psych of Scientific Psychology. He's a, a consulting editor for several other journals related to the fields of psychology, school psychology, and assessment. He was an associate editor for psychological assessment from 2011 to 2015 and has served as a grant reviewer for a number of foundations, is Israel Science Foundation, Swiss National Council, uh, Swiss National Science Foundation, Kuwait Foundation for the Advancement of Sciences, uh, and the Research Council for the Sultan of Oman. Recently, he was appointed a senior editor for NASP Journal School Psychology Review, and is the author of over 100 peer-reviewed research and professional publications, and over 200 professional presentations and continuing ed develop, uh, professional development workshops. Um, Dr. Canavay's research interests in applied psychometrics and in evaluating psychometric fitness of psychological and uh, educational tests, including international applications, and he's been selected as a Fulbright specialist uh, for 2019 to 2022 to assist in international projects. And his research has been supported by the National Institute of Health and the National Institute of Mental Health. So this podcast this evening is an abbreviated version of the half day and full day workshops uh, of the same title, Ethics, Test Standards and Test Interpretation, Measurement Matters. Um, and Dr. Canavay, welcome back. We always enjoy talking with you and listening to you and learning from you. So um, what can you tell us about ethics and standards and measurement? Uh, well, uh, Eric and Rebecca and Rachel, thanks for having me back again. Um, I must say that I, I only wish that I had the NASP hangover. Um, on my return, I came back with the NASP flu. Uh, so uh, that pretty much uh, wiped me out pretty much most of last week. So uh, I'm, I'm sort of fortunate that I was able to uh, get up on my feet and uh, yeah, to join you guys uh, for, for tonight. So uh, thanks for having me back. Um, this is, uh, as, as was uh, uh, mentioned uh, just a, a bit ago, this is sort of an abbreviated uh, presentation of a half-day workshop, which is an abbreviation of the full-day workshop that uh, that I put together and have taught a number of different times. So this is going to be sort of cliff notes of cliff notes, uh, so to speak. Um, uh, the, the the slides that I'm going to share tonight are, are uh, sort of the highlights of uh, uh, the workshop that I presented at NASP, and I'm hoping that maybe NASP will have me back next year for the full day session, um, mostly because I don't get a chance to elaborate on the various psychometric approaches to assessing uh, reliability, validity, and diagnostic utility uh, with a sufficient uh, coverage 
So um, we'll, we'll, we'll see if there's a, an appetite for that. Um, the, the workshop was pretty well attended, uh, but I suspect that that was the that was a session that uh, got exposed to the flu virus. Uh, so anyway, let me um, sort of begin uh, by letting you know that uh, my email address is here on the first uh, slide, as well as my web address for my personal website at the at the university. And there's a lot of information there that's available. And so if you uh, peruse that and um, have any questions, you can certainly shoot me an email. I'm happy to happy to respond. So this workshop, uh, Ethics, Test Standards, and Test Interpretation, Measurement Matters, is a workshop that I've been uh, teaching for quite some time. And it actually was encouraged by uh, uh, Tom Oakland, who was a longtime professor at uh, uh, University of Texas and then at uh, University, University of Florida. And he himself was quite interested in the interface between uh, ethical standards and practices uh, and uh, principles of, uh, of tests and what they could, could and couldn't do, and that we needed to operate within the parameters of what the psychometric uh, fitness of the tests uh, allowed. And so he encouraged me to work on and develop this workshop, and, and I did, and so I've been presenting it ever, ever since. It, uh, APA. In fact, this uh, this August will be the tenth consecutive year that uh, that they're having me uh, teach this full day workshop. And uh, but I've done it for uh, state associations and uh, internationally as well. So I'm getting a trip to International Test Commission because they want me to teach this this workshop for them uh, this uh, this July. So um, so the idea of uh, of ethics. So I always sort of start my workshops with a sort of opening remarks that 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 uh, is a long quote from from Irving Weiner. And uh, Weiner sort of noted that uh, effective clinicians, A, know what their tests can do, and B, act accordingly. And what he's basically talking about here is that knowing what your tests can do uh, is, in a sense, what psychological functions they describe accurately, uh, what diagnostic conclusions can be inferred from them, and with what degree of certainty. And that implies that there's sort of a probabilistic element to what we do. Uh, and then uh, what kinds of behavior can they be expected to predict? And if and these are wrapped up into this notion about uh, the confidence of the psycho psychodiagnostician. And then acting accordingly relates to expressing the uh, opinions that are consonant with the status of the validity data. And doing so is, in a sense, the measure of their ethicality. And I begin with this because it really sort of sets the tone for everything that we do as as school psychologists, uh, this happens to uh, function more in the realm of our application of various tests, but we can certainly apply these to, to all other areas as well. So in terms of covering ethics, um, you know, most of us are, are members of the National Association of School Psychologists, which obligates us to behave and function under the under the ethical principles. Uh, which uh, at the present time is the 2010 version. And if we start at the very beginning, there, there are some ethical standards that have in, indirect uh, implications for our practice uh, of assessment and, and testing. Uh, and some of them are, are actually more direct uh, or explicit uh, elements for ethics. And so almost all ethical principles will sort of begin with or sort of a general element of beneficence. Um, you know, our, our main goal is to, is to help people, help kids. And in order to, to, in a sense, reflect this beneficence, we first of all, uh, first and foremost, do no harm. Um, but in order to do this, we have to practice within the boundaries of our confidence. 
we use the scientific knowledge from psychology and education uh, in order to help the, the the clients that we're working with. Like, you know, children, teachers, parents, school systems, um, and and in a sense, our our practice uh, in a, in a sense to be confident uh, means that we have to sort of understand what have we been trained to do. What, what can we do with, with a degree of uh, sort of supervised experiences? We engage in practices uh, for which we're qualified and competent. Where does that competency come from? It, it's more than just you know, doing a workshop and then you know, saying, oh, I can go ahead and do this practice now. Um, so there, there are a lot of features about how you become qualified and how you become competent. A lot of that has to do with you know, background training and theory and uh, practices and supervised experiences of practica and an internship and even in your first years as a school psychologist we still have supervision uh, in our in our first years uh, as, as a school psychologist you know so that's part of it uh, we are we're always looking at well what what is our level of competency and, and if there's areas that we're weak we seek continuing education and supervision to, to help us uh, improve in that area uh, as a trainer school psychologist one of the things that I'm constantly reminded of is that our, our primary goal is to provide uh, education and training so that we uh, get our students to minimal levels of competency, not maximal levels of competency, but minimal. And, uh, and, and I'm finding that this is, for the past 10 or 15 years, it's becoming more and more impossible to do within just a two-year training program and a one-year internship. There's just much too much for, for students to acquire, to know. Um, uh, within a short amount of time, and uh, the profession is going to have to sort of deal with this, uh, which is tough when you're in a circumstance where we have shortages of school psychologists nationwide. So it's, it's kind of hard to say, hey, we need to have another year of training. Uh, that, that's a, that's a kind of a bitter pill to swallow if we sort of follow that uh, that path, but we may very well need to do that. Um, another ethical principle is the, the aspect of remaining current in uh, developments and research training and professional practices. And you know, keeping current means that we have to have continuing education. We have to continue to read. We have to look at uh, you know, the journals that service us. Um, and in school psychology, there there are many uh, sort of domains or areas that address uh, our our needs. And so there's just a lot to have to keep up with. And the field changes, and practices uh, need to change with the. Uh, with the changing uh, data or evidence uh, that that emerges, and that's no tall. I mean, that, that that's that's not an easy thing to do. Um, there's a, a, a sort of limited amount of time. There's only 24 hours in the day. And I know for myself that you know trying to keep up with everything is uh, is is hard. So it's it's doubly hard with you know for school psychologists in practice. Um, Another aspect of, of professional ethics has to, has to do from from NAS point of view is you know, school psychologists monitor their effectiveness of their services and take corrective action or uh, correct ineffective recommendations. And so, we've all you know made recommendations and we, we you know follow them up and uh, this didn't work. So we you know sort of you know re redouble our efforts and and, and maybe try something new. Uh, uh, so we we work to create, correct the ones that that are not really working. Uh, school psychologists accept responsibility for their uh, their their practices, decisions, recommendations, and, and that sort of thing as well. Um, school psychologists, and, and here we're starting to get at uh, an aspect of the uh, uh, sort of standards, and that is school psychologists maintain the highest standards for responsible professional practices. 
in educational and psychological assessment. And so now we're starting to get more directly into some of the, uh, the ethical principles uh, in, in this sort of topical area. Uh, school psychologists use assessment techniques and practices that the profession considers to be responsible research-based practice. I might like to replace the research-based with uh, evidence-based or empirically supported. Um, there are a number of practices that people claim to be research-based, and yeah, they might be based on research, but the effects are minuscule and uh, probably uh, as a function that maybe we should either abandon them or, or at least certainly qualify them. Uh, but evidence-based practice is really one of the things that I and a bunch of my colleagues are, are really sort of moving in the direction of, of trying to, uh, uh, to to emphasize and and to sort of insist on, um, and that advances in medicine have you know in, in the last you know twenty years have primarily been because of uh, following evidence-based practices and using you know big data or uh, other other kinds of uh, uh, sources of data in, in making better decisions and which leads to better treatment and, and better outcomes. Um, school psychologists uh, select assessment instruments and strategies with reliable and valid for the child and the purpose of the assessments. And this one really starts getting into uh, some more detail and that, that is uh, instrument use or the strategies uh, in order to determine whether they're reliable and valid for the child means that we have to look at where, where does that evidence come from? Uh, is there sufficient evidence in technical manuals to inform us on that? And I've written pretty critically on a, a number of uh, major tests uh, from the, in the Mental Insurance Yearbook, pointing out that there is, in a sense, inadequate information uh, in, in a number of, uh, of test technical manuals uh, such that uh, what's in the technical manual may be insufficient for the examiner to even know whether they should use the test in the first place, especially when we deal with children uh, from uh, a variety of backgrounds, uh, ethnic minorities or language minorities um, and, and cultural minorities, where there's zero information in many technical manuals about the invariance of measurement. And uh, that's really unfortunate because because IDEA requires us to engage in practices that are non-discriminatory. Well, if you don't know whether the test is invariant across some of these important variables, then you don't know whether you, you're going to be uh, acting in a way that is uh, non-discriminatory. Um, and in a sense, it's what we don't know uh, that gets us into trouble. Uh, so I would uh, urge a, a, a very uh, a large uh, amount of, uh, of caution as we're looking at uh, the use of a number of our, of our tasks, you know, basically all our tasks. Uh, school psychologists choose instruments with up-to-date normative data, and most of the tests we use are, are tests that have norms to allow us to look at the performance of the individual in regards to the, the nomothetic or what, what does the, the, the population have to say? How does this person compare to the population? And that's a very useful uh, kind of comparison, useful uh, element for testing. But it's a double-edged sword because a new test may come on the market with up-to-date norms, and so we satisfy this requirement. But it might also be that the technical manual is insufficient in giving us inf uh, information about the adequacy of the, the, the measure, the scores, the comparisons, and that sort of thing. And it could be that the research literature doesn't catch up uh, until maybe two, three, four, five years later. And if you follow what the test company tells you to do in terms of interpretation, 
invariably, much of the scores or comparisons that they talk about are inadequate. And we know this from the literature and we can look, you know, tests like the Woodcock-Johnson 4 or the, uh, or the WISC-5, where the subsequent research that comes out in the peer-reviewed literature shows that the test isn't measuring the, the dimensions that they claim it to measure with, with very, uh, you know, uh, very much accuracy or, um, uh, uh, or function. And then that becomes a problem because although it has up-to-date norms, a lot of the scores that are provided or the comparisons that they recommend you provide uh, are inadequate in terms of their reliability and validity, which means we're making decisions on kids with scores that are inadequate. And had we have known from the technical manual, some of that information was, was present, we might have been, made a different judgment about number one, whether we use the test or not, or number two, which scores we would use or, or what comparisons, because we'd have that that evidence. So that's something we need to kind of keep in mind uh, as we're as we're looking at tests. Yes, up to date norms are great, but as Bojan uh, talked about in 2015, um, you know, we have to treat a, a revision of a test as a, a brand new test, and oftentimes we have to wait till the literature tells us what what the test can actually do uh, with with sort of independent evaluations. Um, school psychologists conduct va valid and fair assessments. Um, everybody would certainly agree with that. Uh, we certainly want to understand, you know, children's disabilities, their developmental uh, characteristics, cultural, linguistic, and experiential backgrounds. All of these affect their performance on tests. Um, and that also means that we select and administer and interpret this assessment instruments in light of these characteristics. So this goes back to the, the comment I made a little bit ago that we might not have um information in the technical manual about uh how uh, cultural or minority status might affect performance in fact that's one of the things that we don't find very much of if anything uh in the technical manuals now um is you know comparison of you know how do individuals with different racial or ethnic backgrounds perform relative to each other or uh, in terms of the measurement invariance if the test measures differently uh, for different kinds of kids, then we might not be able to make the same kinds of inferences with the scores. And we should not assume that they do unless we have evidence to show that they do. And, and that's a problem because that data is available uh, to the publisher, but it does not find itself in terms of uh, uh, presenting information on invariance across some of those important variables in the technical manual. Um, so that's, you know, that's sort of unfortunate and we, probably need to make demands that, you know, this is information that must be there for us to make decisions about whether or not we should use the test. And ultimately, it's the individual, the, the individual school psychologist who's fundamentally responsible for the selection of the test and the use of the test and maintaining these ethical principles, these ethical standards. Uh, if you're an American Psychological Association uh, member, then you're also obligated to the Code of Ethics for, from APA. And there's a lot of very similar kinds of statements or, or ethical principles that are uh, that are nested within APA as well. Uh, providing services, teaching, conducting research uh, based on your education, training, supervised experience, consultation, study, or professional experience. I don't really like the use of the word or there because that pretty much implies that, well, professional experience is apparently maybe all you need. <laughs> If, if or is a pretty important word in that statement, uh, does that mean that if I just have lots of professional experience that I can call myself competent and 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 provide a service? Uh, I would much prefer that to sort of be you know more like and 
um, and that that professional experience be supervised and and that it be training based and and so on. So it's uh, we have to pay attention to the, I guess, the word. So maybe in the revision of these ethical standards, maybe we can get that that or changed uh, to a, to another uh, another article. Um, psychologists work based on the scientific and professional knowledge of the discipline. Um, and in school psychology, we have to pay attention not just to the psychological research, but also educational research. And so we probably have a, a much more uh, difficult uh, road to hoe, as it, as it were, uh, in terms of sort of keeping up with everything. Um, so that's uh, something to, to also keep in mind. Um, in terms of assessments, uh, APA talks about uh, basing opinions on information and techniques sufficient to substantiate the findings. And so, you know, this is sort of like NAS training standard number one, right? Database decision making, and that, that we make decisions based upon data. Uh, but our decisions are only going to be as good as the quality of the data that we're using. And the old principle of, you know, garbage in, garbage out really does apply. Um, but ultimately, we're the ones that are responsible for whatever we put in the psychological report. Um, you know, that's on us. You know, we, we're making inferences or we're, we're suggesting we make inferences about kids. And we have to make sure that the scores and the information that we're basing that on are, are, are adequate, um, are, are sufficient. Psychologists administer and adapt and score and interpret and use assessment techniques in light of the research on or the evidence on the usefulness and proper application of the techniques. This is another sort of element where it takes more than just the technical manual for us to sort of move forward. We have to know what does the what does the research literature tell us about the various scores and the score comparisons. And it seems like every new version of the test has more and more scores and more and more comparisons. Um, and you know, not sufficient evidence that they are in a sense working the way that they're claimed to work. Uh, psychologists use assessment instruments whose validity and reliability have been established uh, for use with the members of the population tested. And so this gets to a comment I made earlier about individuals from, you know, maybe uh, ethnic uh, minorities or cultural minorities or uh, maybe across socioeconomic status. Uh, these are sort of variables where we sort of need to understand whether our tests work as well um, across each of these different dimensions and where there are problems then we probably need to be much more cautious in, in their use. The problem is that usually in a normative sample, we have a sizable number of uh, individuals from you know, white or Caucasian background or Hispanic or uh, Latino, Latina, uh, or, or African-American or Blacks. And there's sufficient sample size to, to actually do these, this research. But where we really, really miss uh, the, the sample size are uh, individuals from Asian-American backgrounds, uh, Native American Indian backgrounds, and there's just a dearth of information available. And because the samples are so small in the standardization sample, although proportionally sampled, you may only have maybe you know, you know, 20 or 30 kids uh, that might be from some of those ethnic backgrounds. And the, the test companies do not seem to have oversampling in those groups in order to study, or at least if they do, they're not reporting it. Um, so it, I think we sort of need to, to sort of look at that. And I know one of my students last year was interested in the WISP-5 and Native American Indian performance. And I sort of tried to get data from around the country. And a number of the contacts that I, that I have, they said, well, we've stopped using the Wexler scales and we've moved on to like the KBC or other kinds of tests, which didn't help my student any. But um, we found a, a school psychologist up in the Northwest Territories of Canada who uh, had a, a data set of 100 kids 
uh, from up uh, above the Arctic Circle, uh, who they had worked with, and you know, she shared that data with my students to do some research. Um, and it turns out that actually there's uh, there's some some challenges. Uh, now this was the Canadian Wisp Five, uh, with First Nations uh, children up there in uh, uh, the Northwest Territories, but um, it does uh, indicate that there there may be some problems with how adequately um, a number of dimensions are being measured with with that version of the test. Um, so we, we constantly are looking for um, information in, in that regard so that we understand you know, what, what can we say or what, what does work well enough with these you know, special populations. Um, and and that's, that's sort of important to, to think about. And I think that that's important too, because if, if school psychologists aren't thinking about that, and you know that teachers or parents or, or I mean, nobody else thinks about these things unless like we have to be the ones to ask these questions and to do that. Otherwise, it's, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and, and, and especially with the, with the Native American Indian uh, tribes, uh, they're, they're particularly sensitive about uh, the, the use of, uh, of tests and, 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 and measures uh, with, uh, with, with, their, with their children, um, and justifiably so. Um, so, you know, but they're a particularly neglected population and, um, uh, and, and, and particularly at risk uh, in, in society for, for a number of, of, of difficulties and challenges. So, uh, so we, we certainly need to do better uh, along those lines as well. Um, uh, the APA ethical standards talk about things like obsolete, obsolete tests or outdated test results. So we, we don't base our assessments or intervention uh, decisions on uh, data or test results that are outdated. So maybe the last time the kid was evaluated was maybe two years ago, and maybe that data is not sufficient for making decisions today. We may, may need to update uh, that information. Uh, we don't base decisions on, or recommendations on tests or measures that are obsolete. So uh, I think I said in the workshop at NASPA a week and a half ago, I said, well, anybody out there using the Stanford Binet form LM? <laughs> if you are, this is many generations way too old. Uh, you're probably not going to have any reasonable kinds of inferences made from scores from, from that test. They're just way, way too outdated. Uh, but as, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, even though a test may have brand new norms, that does not necessarily mean that the test in and of itself is going to be uh, satisfactory. Uh, and we won't find that out until after we you know, get, get data from, uh, from peer-reviewed literature that, that some, comes some some years later. Uh, psychologists re retain responsibility for application and interpretation and the use of assessment instruments, whether or not they score or interpret the test themselves or use automated or other services. And so if you're using a scoring program or if you're using an interpretive program that gives you statements and, and, and so on or uh, things to follow and they work their way into your report, well, they become yours uh, and your responsibilities and whatever you, can, you, you can't go back and say, oh, well, that's what the program said. Um, well, you're apparently saying it too if it makes its way into your report. And so we have to be very cautious about the adequacy of what those comparisons are, the adequacy of the statements that are being made, and do they really apply to this particular kid? Um, we have to kind of think about what the background information is. Um, do, do do the conclusions and do the results actually fit uh, this particular kid uh, that that we're working with? And so I think that's another element where we have to kind of always think about. Um, yeah, there used to be a program. I, uh, I can't remember. It was a report writing program, and I think their their motto was just sign it. Uh, you put all the information in there, and it generates the report. And all you, the implication was all you have to do is just sign it, and, and you're done. Well, 
it, chances are there might be some statements in there that, that may not actually fit for this kid. And so if you just sign up, you might be in some difficulty with that. Um, the International School Psychology Association also has a code of ethics, and I'm not going to sort of go through each one of these, but, but again, they talk about the same kinds of principles that we just got done covering with NASP and APA. Although I think that the International School Psychology Association is actually a little more elaborative in, in some of their areas, uh, all the way down into dealing with uh, rights and dignity and social justice uh, components that work their way into their ethical principles and ethical standards as well. Um, so we'll kind of skip through some of these. Uh, they're very similar uh, in sort of background. And those of you who are, uh, if you look at the, um, uh, the, the, the handouts, uh, you'll be able to sort of you know, see some of these uh, elements that uh, that I sort of highlighted from from those prof professional ethics. So the the second component, so we, so we, we recognize that ethics are important and they guide our practices. Uh, and we as psychologists and school psychologists, uh, we are uh, individuals who help to maintain these standards for the profession. So if we have uh, individuals, colleagues, or or other individuals we become aware of whose practices we think might be in violation of the ethical standards, then it's our obligation to uh, to consult with them and to point out what we think the problems are and try to work, work it out and get them to change their practice. And if we're not convinced, then we might have to bring up ethical charges or that sort of thing. And so uh, we, we police ourselves. Uh, and the reason we police ourselves is because if we don't do that, then government will step in and take care of it for us. And very rarely do professional associations think it's a good idea for government to step in and, and, and try to you know, work within within our parameters. So so we, we want to take care of that. So ethics are definitely sort of that that sort of foundation that we, we operate from. But the second part of this uh, uh, aspect of, of where assessment and, and, and testing and, and so on interfaces has to do with standards, uh, standards for educational psychological testing. Uh, the current version of this uh, is a 2014 publication. And I, I think that every school psychologist should have a copy of these standards uh, in their professional library and be familiar with what they cover. And what, what happens with, with this, uh, and, and, and it's a very all encompassing um, you know, publication. It, it, it deals with everybody from the end user, the, psychologists who are using tests, uh, but it also deals with, uh, you know, test authors and test publishers and, and other individuals who come into contact with the development and sale of, of tests. And uh, so there are a number of, of features within the standards, uh, some of which are going to have direct implications for, for school psychology practice, and others it'll be a little more tangential and, or, or covering areas that maybe we don't, we don't really deal with as much. But the but the standards open up in the very first chapter with with dealing with validity um, as the fundamental uh, element for uh, for the use of our tests. You know what kind of inferences can we make about somebody from the scores we get on the measure, regardless of what the measure is, um, and 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 that's uh, that's that's critical. And they give lots of examples of of how we might provide or establish validity. Of our measures, and and no one measure is going to, in a sense, be valid for all purposes or all uses. Um, so you know, we shouldn't expect that a test is going to be able to do you know everything. It's not like the Swiss Army knife where where you know, you can do everything with it. It's very specific. There are specific purposes, specific uses, and there are going to be some limitations, and we have to understand what they what they are. 
Uh, the second chapter deals with reliability and the precision of our measurement and the errors in measurement and recognizing that all of our measures have error and we have to account for those, which is why we always interpret our scores using a confidence band. Uh, you know, then 95% of the time the person's true score will fall within a certain range of uh, plus or minus you know, two times the standard uh, error of measurement and, and so on. Um, and and so we, we want to understand that. And, What's interesting is that you know, validity is talked about first, uh, but it's really founded on sufficient reliability or precision in measurement. So the old adage that uh, you know, if, if, if test scores are, are not reliable, then they can't be valid. If we go to the next step, then if they're not valid, then they can't be diagnostically accurate or diagnostically useful, which is sort of a, a, an even higher uh, element for a test. Uh, it's fine if it's, you know, it's great, it has to have reliable uh, scores or reliable comparisons, because if we're dealing with, you know, the comparison of two scores or comparison of score to the average score, those score differences or score uh, uh, comparisons themselves have to be sufficiently reliable. Um, and, and if they're not, then any decisions coming from them are going to be in error as well. We might as well, you know, and, and again, if they operate a chance, then you're just like tossing coins. And we probably don't want to be making decisions on children uh, based on tosses of coins. Um, so, so that becomes then important too, is that we, we think about reliability as setting the standard, uh, the, the, the base or the uh, sort of like a base of the pyramid, and then we build on that and we look for validity and then given sufficient validity, then we want to find out whether or not we can use this test for individual decision making. And that's where the diagnostic accuracy or diagnostic utility comes in. And so that becomes very important to understand as well. And uh, there, there are more articles starting to be published now in the school psychology literature looking at aspects of diagnostic accuracy or, or utility, uh, the, the extent to which uh, we might have uh, you know, risk ratios or uh, uh, database decision making where we're sort of looking at the odds ratios of, of individuals that are improving our decision making by uh, adding into our assessment uh, information that uh, is uh, either highly predictive or, or, or highly uh, accurate in determining who does or who does not have particular uh, disorders. Uh, so we, we sort of want to think about those things as well. Uh, but the, the standards for educational psychological testing covers uh, a lot of different elements, both from the psychometrics of the test, but also in terms of uh, things like the scores, uh, what are the scores that are provided, uh, are they normative scores, are they scores that might be related to um, you know, diagnosis. So uh, a test doesn't have to have norms to be useful. Uh, there are a number of tests that are developed simply based upon items that reflect uh, a particular disorder or, or condition. And given a certain number of items uh, that achieve a sort of a, a cut score level, may be sufficient in helping us to identify this person has a high probability of having this condition. Regardless of norms, the, the symptoms or the, or the characteristics are at a level that are highly predictive or highly accurate in terms of saying this person has this particular condition, whether it's you know bipolar disorder or depression or anxiety disorders and so on. So we don't always have to rely on a norm reference test, um, although most of our tests in school psychology tend to be norm reference, but that isn't necessarily a requirement. Uh, it really depends on the purpose. Um, but in terms of test using using scores, you know, what are the scores that are available? Um, is there sufficient reliability for them? And then there's also elements of test administration and scoring and reporting uh, and interpretation of the scores, which the standards talk about. And what kinds of evidence do we need to have 
in order to say there's a high degree of um, of utility to, to this score, and, and so I'm going I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to I'm going to interpret it. I'm going to make some some inferences about the individual uh, that I'm working with. And if it's not sufficient, then we probably ought not say very much, if anything, uh, or maybe we don't use that particular measure because it may be not sufficient for for the purpose that, that I want to use it. Um, and and we have to sort of understand that. Um, uh, certainly, uh, areas of workplace testing and credentialing, uh, you know, individual schools, colleges probably not going to be involved with with that that element. But certainly, in educational testing and assessment, we are. And, and so, there are a number of chapters that have more direct applications for uh, for school psychology practice. So, one of the things that um, I always kind of cycle back to is you have ethics, and you have a number of test standards that say our tests need to have these uh, these characteristics, these fundamental psychometric properties. Uh, for the variety of scores or comparisons that that are provided, um, so we then you know say that these are the kinds of uh, uh, the psychometric fitness of our of our tests, measures, comparisons, and that sort of thing. Um, so we, inter we we sort of put these two things together, and it brings us right back to to Irv Weiner's uh, admonition that is effective clinicians know what their tests can do and act accordingly. And so this becomes then how do you know? That your test can do what it claims to do, and if we look at the claims that are made, you know, within you know test manuals, uh, or you know advertisements, or clinical guidebooks that uh, that many of us uh, have on our bookshelves, or we were even taught uh, from, um, well, that becomes then an issue of uh, the principles of measurement and statistics, and so if we're going to follow Weiner's advice, uh, then psychologists have to have fundamental competencies. In measurement, that means we have to understand uh, the principles of how we assess and what are the standards for uh, satisfactory test score reliability and validity and utility and norms. And these become fundamental competencies uh, that professional psychologists and school psychologists need to have. And if you don't have them, then it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to make a judgment about whether a test has satisfactory reliability and validity and diagnostic accuracy. Um, but it's, it, in a sense, our professional ethics dictate that that is our responsibility to know. So one of the things that, uh, that happened um, uh, a number of years ago was there was, there was a survey, survey that was done in 1990. Uh, Leona Aiken uh, and others uh, at Arizona State University uh, did a survey of doctoral training programs in terms of what did they do in terms of training doctoral level psychologists in terms of measurement. And then in 2008, uh, Aiken, uh, Weston, Millsap uh, basically replicated that survey. They wanted to, they wanted to see what changed uh, since their first survey. And it turned out not very much. Uh, very little had changed in the doctoral training programs in terms of measurement. So then they quoted, we find it deplorable that a dozen years later, the measurement curriculum in psychology, uh, it, it, it basically occupies a median of 4.5 weeks. In 4.5 weeks, you are unable to make a dent uh, in what is, what is required to be known in terms of advanced measurement principles and statistics that directly apply to the various scores and comparisons within a test uh, to make a judgment about sufficient reliability and validity and diagnostic utility. And they concluded that you know most graduates lacked fundamental competency in measurement. Now, if you think about that, um, if you're not competent 
then you are incompetent. If you're incompetent, then that's unethical, necessarily unethical, which leads to a really huge problem because how many of us actually received satisfactory training in measurement and statistics to be able to open a technical manual and understand what's there that's supportive, what's not there that should be there, and what's there that actually is factually incorrect or not satisfactory support, but passed off as satisfactory support. And when I ask this question in my workshops, whether it's at APA uh, or NASP or in state associations, I get a few hands that get it raised, but they're usually you know, university trainers who have you know, some psychometric background. But the vast majority, uh, almost all of the practitioners, you know, they don't raise their hand. And that really spells out one of the major problems from my perspective uh, of the entire profession. And that is uh, measurement is in a sense uh, minimized uh, by not being demanded uh, in terms of a course, a course to, to, to actually teach advanced measurement. So at the end of this survey, uh, they, they, they said, well, you know, the solution to this problem is, you know, coursework that when you're in a graduate program, uh, and I, I would not distinguish between specialist level, level training in, psych, in school psychology from doctoral level training with regard to this criterion. And that is everybody uh, needs to have uh, satisfactory training in this uh, so that we can be competent in uh, understanding what works, what doesn't, you know, uh, so that we can, in a sense, ethically use the tests that we're being asked to, to use. Um, and, and if we're not, and, and, and this is one of the problems, is that there doesn't seem to be a demand uh, from the accrediting bodies to say you will have an advanced measurement course that covers you know, topics of you know, reliability, validity, diagnostic utility, foundations of uh, or philosophy of science, and where's, you know, how, do, how do we judge uh, the, the qualities of, of this background? Um, and if we don't have coursework in it, then we're just simply telling people, yeah, this stuff doesn't really apparently matter very much. But I would argue that it matters a, a great deal. And in fact, one of the things that uh, that 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 we're finding out is that uh, in in the latest surveys, uh, John Kranzler uh, and, and others uh, just published a study recently in uh, Contemporary School Psychology, where they looked at the assessment practices for uh, uh, identifying specific learning disability. Uh, and it sort of was a, a shoot off of another larger uh, survey uh, in terms of the professional practices. But it is. Um, telling that a lot of the practices that are being used on a regular basis, uh, according to those who completed the survey, are practices that have been shown not, not just not, that we don't know that there's uh, adequate reliability, but we know that they're inadequate in terms of reliability. Uh, things like the, the processing strengths and weaknesses approaches. Uh, most of those uh, methods you know, have, have the fundamental scores that are going into them are inadequate. Um, and their comparisons or the, the, uh, the, the different scores or, or so on are, in a sense, even worse. So that basically means that we're, 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 many professionals are using practices that have been shown in, repeatedly in literature not to work, uh, and yet they're still being used. And I suspect part of the reason they're, they're still being used is that there's some intuitive value to them. Um, that's one thing. But then the other part is that they've been taught to use these things by people who may not understand some of these weaknesses and, and the psychometrics themselves. So they're in, it, it, it's, a, it's a much bigger problem, I think, than, uh, than maybe most are willing to admit. 
And so part of it's a training issue. And I, I tell people in the workshop, I said, look, I don't blame you. If, if your training program didn't have a course in this, then why should I expect that you would know about this? Uh, and I applaud you for coming to a workshop that is dealing with these difficult topics. Um, be, because when they look at the research literature uh, that is in a sense um, not consistent with what's being presented in the technical manuals, they are quite unhappy and ask me, why isn't this information in the technical manual? Why isn't, and I have to say, say, well, it's not that it wasn't available. Um, the choices were made in terms of what went in the technical manual. Uh, I, you know, I don't know why they made the decision about leaving some information out, but I point out what is missing that needs to be there. And I've done it in a, no, a number of uh, publications, either through the Metro Measurements Yearbook or uh, journal articles uh, that point out, you know, what these shortcomings might be. And so, you know, that becomes then an, an issue for us to, to sort of cons consider as well. Um, so measurement and statistics are important, uh, number one, because we have to choose tests. Which tests are we going to use? We have to choose what test with, with whom are we going to use the test? Under what conditions? Are there some conditions where a certain test would be okay, but maybe not in another condition? How do you know? How do you know which test or which scores you might interpret? And in a sense, this really is a fundamental question that pretty much the, the, the psychometric fitness of the test, you know, whether it's the norms, the reliability, the validity, and diagnostic utility, how are you going to use the test? What is the purpose for your, for your assessment? Uh, we have to have these, these you know, answers uh, to, to, to satisfactorily use, use the tests that are, that are available. Um, we can get information from, uh, you know, test manuals. Uh, but again, as I mentioned, there are a number of, of, of shortcomings, you know, manuals that are you know, incomplete uh, or inadequate uh, in terms of their presentation. Um, we can get information from the professional literature. Uh, some journals like the Journal of Psychoeducational Assessment uh, will uh, at times have uh, more elaborate uh, test reviews than the Metro Management Yearbook is able to provide. Um, uh, we might find that uh, there are professional newsletters that sometimes will have a test review in it. Um, so, so there are a number of sources of information, but we, we sort of have to look for it. Um, uh, and we'll also see information uh, in the professional literature uh, in terms of specific journal articles that deal with particular tests uh, or particular scores from tests in terms of evaluation of their uh, psychometric fitness. But ultimately, regardless of the source of information, we have to, in a sense, evaluate the information that's presented to us. Uh, how do you judge the accuracy or the viability of the statements that are being made, whether it's test authors or publishers, um, you know, whoever is responsible for, for placing that information? You know, how, how do we judge the adequacy? If we don't have the competencies in psychometrics or those measurement principles, we are unable to make those uh, judgments. We just don't know, and that's a that's a huge problem. Uh, and to a large extent, if we don't know what we don't know, then we're really in big trouble, and we fall prey to claims or uh, um, recommendations coming from people who are authority figures. And you never, in a sense, want to sort of just simply believe in something simply because an authority figure told you what truth was, especially if there's a financial conflict of interest. Uh, we are particularly susceptible under those kinds of conditions to, in a sense, falling prey or, or making bad decisions about test use under those conditions. Um, so, you know, we, we hardest have to understand that. 
Um, so basically measurement and statistics and ethics and science all sort of are wrapped up together. Uh, the major emphasis is always ethics and test standards that are really the guiding principles. What's interesting is that uh, as far back as 1938, in the very first uh, uh, issue or the edition of the Mental Measurements Yearbook, Oscar Burroughs wrote in the preface, test users had every right to demand that test authors and publishers present full particulars concerning the methods used in constructing and validating the tests which they place on the market. 1938, and we're still not there. We still do not have the full particulars being presented. And when we look at the research literature and in the, in the peer reviewed literature uh, in subsequent years, we find that the tests fall way short of what the claims are. So if you're using the practices of interpretation that come from the manual, there's almost entirely 100% chance you're probably going to be making interpretive statements or inferences about kids. They're probably not supported by the empirical evidence. And that's probably not a really good way to operate if you're counting yourself as a science. Science requires that we have replicated research that supports the practice. And what we're finding is that a lot of folks are, are simply using intuitive approaches. They make sense and they're well-intentioned, but they may very well be wrong. And that means we make bad decisions. Um, so I like the Royal Society's motto. Uh, uh, so the Royal Society in the UK is like the it's like our uh, Academy of Sciences. Um, uh, but, but back in the 1500s, when this was established, uh, they they had a motto: "Nullius in verba." Uh, basically, take nobody's word for it. Um, you, you have to reason for yourself. You look at the evidence. You come up with your own conclusions. Don't take something because an authority figure, even me. Uh, don't believe it just because I said it on this podcast or in a workshop. Um, you know, in God we trust, all others must bring data. And I'm absolutely sure of the of the second uh, principle there. Um, everybody has to have evidence and data. Uh, and where, where it doesn't exist, then we have to, in a sense, be especially cautious and especially understanding whether or not there's a financial conflict of interest on the part of the person who's making the recommendation. Uh, if they're making the recommendation that they have something to sell, uh, and in a sense, your decision making is based upon your having that thing that, that they're selling, then that, that could be a problem. So finally, I just wanted to sort of, uh, I gave a list of, of publications here uh, and areas that uh, you know, the, the, the audience might be interested in looking at. Um, and so the, the references are, are here to, to look up. And one of the, uh, certainly one of the more important ones is uh, Richard McFall's Manifesto for a Science of Clinical Psychology. And although he wrote it for clinical psychology, I think it definitely uh, applies to school psychology practice too. Uh, just substitute the word school psychology for clinical psychology. I think we'd be, we'd be in much better position. But the other thing that we want to be aware of is the, the Turner, Demers, and uh, Fox and Reed article from 2001, which was APA's guidelines for test user qualifications. And, and this is a sort of a publication uh, that I, I have on the slides. It's sort of summarized some of the different tables. It's what we sort of need to know. Um, we need to know things like the sources of uh, variability and measurement error in our tests. Where does it come from? Where, do, where does error come from in our tests? And it comes from all kinds of places, including us not administering the test properly. Um, and this happens. Uh, we drift away from the standardized procedures over time. Um, you know, surgeons have to go back and get requalified for, for, for practices, uh, I believe. And uh, do we ever have to go back and recheck to make sure we're administering the, 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 the WISC-5 or the WISC-4, uh, you know, according to standardized guidelines? We sort of assume that people are doing that, but maybe we ought not 
make that assumption uh, too, too wisely. Um, uh, all the different knowledge needed in terms of uh, selecting uh, the, the various tests. Uh, and so these are all psychometric principles that we need to be aware of. And if you look through this list and you see terms and you sort of sort of know of them, but you really are not very sure about, you know, the, how you assess for them, then in a sense, that's an area that is uh, you know, sorely in need of, of improvement because these are critical elements in judging what the test can and can't do. Um, you know, aspects about uh, you know, additional knowledge necessary, things like legal rights and procedures, standardized procedures and, and that sort of thing. Um, uh, factors in dealing with test use with diverse groups is another area that they, they talk about, including things like test bias. Uh, it turns out that, that actually a lot of our, our tests in, in school psychology practice, intelligence tests and so on, uh, there's a lot of evidence to show that uh, a lot of our tests maybe not, are not biased. Uh, fairness is an entirely different matter, uh, but does the test work the same way? And for some of them, they, the, 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 the scores may work pretty similar, uh, but, but in a sense, each, te each test and score is, is, is specific. And so... Uh, we, you know, some scores might be satisfactory, others might not be. And so we have to sort of apply these things to, uh, to, to the test and, and all its variety of scores. And the more scores and the more comparisons, in a sense, uh, the, the more uh, you know, questioning we need to be in terms of whether or not we're, we're, we're adequate in these, in these areas. Um, and then there's parameters that are also specified in terms of dealing with uh, testing uh, disabled individuals, which certainly we, we work with as, as school psychologists. So um, I'm going to kind of end here uh, with sort of the slide that deals with uh, what are the foundations of measurement. And I've mentioned them a number of times, you know, reliability, validity, uh, utility, or the individual applications and norms. Um, and then there's a bunch of slides that sort of follow after this, but we certainly don't have time in, in, in one hour to kind of go through everything. But people can sort of look at the slides and the handout and, and uh, think about these, these different facets. And, um, I'd sort of like to be able to answer questions that, that people might have posted or, or, or so on to um, sort of, sort of on, uh, answer questions that, that some, some might have. We've had a lot of good comments, I think, and I want to use my fancy ability to put um, <laughs> up on the screen here, but I'm, I'm trying to scroll back because um, there's so much talk going on, but I like this one. Um, I'm becoming increasing, increase, increasingly aware that there is a disturbing lack of research base for many practices that are pervasive in the profession. Um, yep. And that was followed up with this one here. Yikes, if our assessment tools aren't measuring what they're supposed to be measuring, then why are we using them? And I think that um, what speaks to me is, you know, I think that when I was a, a new school psychologist, you know, you pick up the manual, you pick up the test, like this is the test that everybody else uses and you go and you use it and you don't, and the manual says it's awesome because, you know, it's the manual and they're selling, it's a product, but we have to remember it's a product. <laughs> and um, so just because they say that it measures what it measures, that we, they say because that it's appropriate for this population or that population, um, Again, they're they're selling something to you, and that, that's yeah. I think pretty obvious too. When you go to a NASP convention, you see all the fancy booths, and they're passing out all the the pens and all the cool stuff and the raffles, and you know, um, it's a product. So it's good to keep in mind. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the things that and and I, I sort of usually open up my workshops to the sort of a, a little bit of a narrative when I when I got my my school psychology degree, got my PhD, and then I went out to Arizona. 
I was taught to interpret intelligence tests pretty much like the way most other people have, have done over, over the years and, and still in many places how it's done today. And, and it's, you know, interpreting the full scale and then it's interpreting the, at the time, IQ scores. And then it was the factor scores. And then it was the subtest. And then it was the subtest instead of comparisons. And it was, and then it was pairwise comparisons. I mean, literally it was every bloody comparison under the sun because that's just what, in a sense, was, was talked about. Um, and, and in my very first years as a school psychologist, I started reading articles that were being published in Psychological Assessment and School Psychology Review and so on that was pointing out that, hey, most of these scores, the reliability are so inadequate that they're operating at chance. And if that was the case, I'm writing this two and a half page long report of the cognitive portion of, of the report. And probably outside of the full scale score, nothing else really had satisfactory reliability. Why was I writing two and a half pages uh, on scores that were not sufficient in terms of reliability? So I really had this this sort of existential, professional existential crisis in front of me. And there was a slide that uh, uh, Ryan McGill put in our uh, documented session at NASP, and it was one of the last slides, and it was uh, basically Morpheus holding out his hand. There's a red pill in one hand and a blue pill in the other. And I said, and that was that's kind of how I felt. Uh, and this is actually before the Matrix actually came out. It's like, okay, I I took the red pill uh, because I really wanted to, in a sense, act uh, in a way that was uh, consonant with the um, the validity evidence, um, and not because my professors taught me what to do, but rather what does the evidence allow for me to do uh, as an ethical psychologist. And so by doing that, um, my, my reports became much shorter um, and I was making less inferences about kids that were most likely not true. And um, and that brings us to the other question in terms of, well, would I give a test that you know requires me to give you know, seven or ten subtests? Uh, or will a test that has four subtests that I can maybe get get it done in you know 20 or 30 minutes? If that's satisfactory for estimating the overall global score. Maybe I just simply use that test and move on and go do something else with my hour or more saved time in the assessment practice. So I think we need to be more efficient. And that's one of the ways that we can address the shortage of school psychologists. If we're not running around giving WJs and, and whisks to everybody uh, under the sun with the illusion that this, this, you know, these patterns and profiles and so on are going to give me some real useful meaning, um, maybe I just simply estimate G really well with you know a, a more brief measure uh, WASI or RIAS uh, or you know, other kind of measure um, and be more efficient with my time and less um, inferences that are, that are more, you know, high stakes inferences with scores that are in, insufficient. I'm seeing also, I'm going to put this comment up here. I want to know your thoughts here. Um, what this presentation does, does in this, it's the second time I've heard him speak is make me more make me appreciate Iowa's uh, special education model more and more. So they're yeah. not categorical. Um, yeah. So not, yeah. It's probably a reasonable thing, given the fact that we, we really don't have rule in or, or positive predictive power methods for identifying kids with, let's say, specific learning disabilities. There just, there just are no adequate measures to actually rule kids in. We have good, good ways to rule kids out, but the thing is we're not actually doing evaluations to rule out LD. We're looking for ways to rule them in. And, you know, to be honest, you know, if we're dealing with a kid with learning problems or, you know, their achievement is, is not adequate, well, we kind of know the technology about how do you teach kids to read. Uh, we're getting better at how do you teach kids to do math. So 
you know, maybe we just sort of look at where the kid's skill level is and in a sense work on having them develop mastery and, and move on from there. Um, you know, because the psychometric phrenology that we seem to be uh, engaging in isn't really uh, doing the job. That's a good point. And I think just based on everything you said, the likelihood of our false positives are extremely high, um, you know, given what we're looking at. Uh, there were a lot of really good comments, uh, you know, as, as Rachel mentioned, uh, Dr. McGill uh, chimed in as well. So uh, shout out to Dr. McGill, who's been a guest here as well. Who we could not track down at NASP. Just going to throw that out there. <laughs> he was the other unicorn. <laughs> 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 um, but some good thoughts about non-categorical and really just giving kids what they need rather than uh, going through this taxonomy of disabilities that we may or may not be able to accurately measure and um, quantify. But then, you know, when we, we think about all that, what does the kid really need? The bottom line is, you know, effective instruction in X, Y, Z. We don't need all this other stuff to wade through that. Yeah, I'd be curious to know how many, what proportion of kids who have difficulty in, let's let's say, reading, um, what proportion of those kids are actually being taught with methods that are not consistent with the National Reading Panel? Mm-hmm. Therein lies the problem for right. many kids. And it doesn't take, you know, cognitive tests or other kinds of diagnostic tests to figure out what the problem is there. It's a tier one instructional uh, delivery problem. Yes. Um, unfortunately, we don't ever blame the curriculum. We almost always blame the kid. Right. That is, yes. that is so true. And so, um, you know, that reading is one of the things that I'm like most fired up about right now. And I see these great movements to change some of that. And I see um, dyslexia movements and I see, you know, um, people advocating for better, you know, screening of dyslexia and, and better interventions like tier two and tier three. And I think that that's all awesome. You know, we, we need to advocate for things like that. But then I always I look back to tier one and, you know, we can, we can test these kids all day long and we can compare our school scores all day long. And, um, you know, it just kind of muddies the water a little bit. If tier one is not doing what it's supposed to be doing, how can you even go? Right. I don't. <laughs> well, and it also brings up the other part, you know, and if, if we're thinking about, let's say cognitive tests in terms of informing number one, they, they don't seem to give us uh, useful information in terms of uh, correctly identifying kids who might have uh, LD, but the more problematic element is that there have not been uh, found uh, interve- many interventions that, that come out of that, that actually differentially work with, with kids. Um, so, you know, Matt Burns published a, a study, a meta-analysis sort of looking at those kinds of things. So if what we're doing in, you know, to a great extent uh, takes a lot of time with expensive tests and our professional time is very expensive, that's a waste of resources when it's not actually leading to actually better interventions, actually direct uh, uh, effects on on the, on the actual teaching and skill development of the kids. And so in a shortage of school psychologists, maybe we just spend our time differently, uh, more wisely, more efficiently. Uh, and I think if we do that, we'd probably serve kids even better, even with shortages. That's a hopeful note. I yeah. like that. <laughs> I, I also want to say I'm the comments um, next to the YouTube video have been such a great conversation that I encourage anyone who is listening um, to the recorded broadcast to log into YouTube and watch the video so that you can 
um, join the conversation because as you're watching, you can also contribute and it links up to the time, uh, the same time where others were commenting tonight. So I hope that we can continue the discussion over time. There, there's so many great ideas here and it just good thoughts. Um, the most sad faces uh, emoji that we, that we probably had in a while, but, um, but when we know better, we can do better. So I think that's helpful. Absolutely. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming. And I know that was really tough to, to cram in a oh, yeah. workshop and just kind of hitting the highlights. So, um, yeah. And I think that, so your, your, um, your half day presentation on NASP though, um, was that should be up right for members who want to pay for that, for that presentation. Was it recorded or no? I signed the paperwork for it to be recorded. Um, I used the microphone in the room. I do not know if it actually was recorded or not. I have no idea. So it, maybe it they were doing it behind the scenes. Um, and, and it's so great. Um, so um, yes, it, it definitely was recorded. The post test questions still have to be created. So for people who want to um, earn the credits, but it, so it will be up on NASP's website soon. And uh, we highly recommend it. Okay. Awesome. Very good. All right. And our next podcast, just looking ahead, um, is going to be with Dr. Mackey, who's going to talk about LD. And I think that'll be a good one as well. Um, 315, it looks like, is what I'm seeing. So um, that'll be good. And we, we caught her. Uh, Eric and I both caught her. I think Rebecca had already left um, yeah. by the time, but we, we caught um, a good presentation by her. So that'll be a fun one. Um, and looking for last minute comments. Um, and it looks like Dr. McGill is coming yeah. in. I'm going to use my powers and put him up there. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the documented session, so that you guys both did um, from NASP, was recorded as well, so people can can look for that. That's I good. do want to make a, a quick note uh, that the documented session was uh, uh, basically an invited presentation that was based on the article of the year from the Journal of School Psychology in 2018, and Elsevier, who is the publisher for the journal is making that article available as a free download from the journal for another for an, an additional six months so anybody who's interested in that particular article uh you can download it for free and uh, uh you might want to share that with uh legislators at the state level or the federal level because there's a lot of uh, gold in there uh in terms of helping to make better uh, uh better decisions about law and and uh, and, and practices and uh, education and school psychology practice. That's awesome. Um, that, that just triggered. I've got one, one last quick question. Because <laughs> um, you mentioned law. Um, do you think that, um, so obviously we aren't as school psychologists being challenged when we use a measure that's not appropriate because nobody else knows this stuff and most school psychologists don't know this stuff. Do you think that um, things would change if there were lawsuits brought? Like if there was a savvy lawyer that, that like picked it apart and really actually knew <laughs> uh, some stats? Yes, um, I, I, th I think that that would uh, that it, it's it's sort of uh, something that is likely to happen at some point um, when I, I do not know. Um, but uh, but certainly, um, you know, answering the question, are the scores that you're using for your diagnostic decision making, are the comparisons you're using, uh, are they based upon evidence in the peer reviewed literature that are supportive? And if the answer is no, you probably ought not be using them. Or if you do, 
uh, you should actually be presenting it like an experiment and saying, um, we don't know whether this works or not. So we're getting informed consent for you to act on this in a particular way. Uh, and then that also requires us to, to dictate what the positive and possible negative outcomes might be if we were to go down that road. Then the parent can make an, an informed decision about this rather than just simply following our, our guidance and um, our best intentions, but maybe not uh, evidence-based. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Makes yeah. sense. I wanted to add, uh, I think we have Stefan Dabrowski also coming on uh, in April. So the, the nice. all three of you guys will have uh, made the podcast. <laughs> so. Uh, and I'm uh, really glad that the article will be available and the session because I think we had a committee team meeting during the session, so we weren't able to attend that Wednesday of NASP. So I'm uh, looking forward to, to seeing it, seeing the video. Or the yeah. And we can post go. that article too. We'll put that up on the yes. YouTube um, link or on the YouTube description. All right. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Thank you, Dr. Canavay.